Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. Hello, Simone. How are you this August, you know, mid-August? Are you surviving the heat? Are you, you know, it's going to be that time of year where I'm like, <laughs> come on, let's just get to October. We've got things happening in the Atlantic. We've got you know, humidity of like a hundred percent. Penny got in the car yesterday and she said, it says 106. That's officially a heat wave. I'm like, where did you, <laughs> where did you hear that from? But yeah, I guess so. Also, She's been movie. listening to our episodes with uh, <laughs> Steve Caparata and, and other <laughs> meteorologists. Maybe so. Maybe so. I just thought that was pretty funny. So that I still, I was still talking about this, um, that past episode, just because I actually was telling my husband about it. And I was like, Billy, did you know that we could be out of letters for hurricanes? <laughs> and um, so I just thought there was tons of fun facts for Greg Grandy and Chip Klein to fight over, too, so that they could prove who's the avid listener for the show. We, yeah. are, we have a great show guest on today. She probably has fun facts and factoids for us. And she's got an amazing South Louisiana last name that I actually know how to spell. So we want to welcome Jessica Schecksneider to our show. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, thank you. So Jessica Schecksneider is the author of a book called Fragile Grounds. Uh, she was the recipient of a 2018 Preserve Louisiana Award and a 2018 Coastal Stewardship Award from our friends at the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana. So before we get into that, though, Jessica, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and welcome to the show. Thank you. First, let me say Thank you for having me on the show and giving me the opportunity to talk about my work. And so introducing myself, I'm Jessica Schecksneider. My education and research background is in anthropology and geography. I worked for nearly 15 years for a Louisiana Sea Grant based at LSU in Baton Rouge. And I'm currently medically retired and using this time to promote my research and my book, Fragile Grounds. Well, we'll have to talk about what you're working on next, but let's talk a little bit about Fragile Grounds. So the said in Country Roads Magazine that your co-author of Fragile Grounds, Mary Mannheim, changed your career path. So let, let's talk a little bit before the book. Let's talk about how you got to the book. Okay. Um, I met Mary because I decided um, in my 30s to go back to school and get an English degree. Um, along along the way. In this degree, I decided to take an intro to anthropology course as an elective, and that course was taught by Mary Mannheim, and I like to say she sucked me in like a <laughs> vortex. I mean, she she is phenomenal, and I actually, because of her class, changed my major to anthropology, and I just knew because of that class that I had found my niche. I've always been interested in the connection of people to place. So anthropology is the study of people. And I combine that with my love of geography. And it just was an, a natural fit. 
So you found your place through Mary, right? I, <laughs> so I really did. <laughs> for our listeners, uh, Mary is known as the Bone Lady, and she's internationally known for her work at the FACES Lab. And FACES stands for Forensic Anthropology and Computer Enhancement Services. Um, and that's at LSU. And she retired last spring after 34 years at LSU. Jessica, I remember seeing news pieces on Mary and this like fascinating work that she does. And so I, I can definitely see um, where where she might suck you in. So were you working at Sea Grant at the time or then did you go to work at Sea Grant? No, I was actually working at Sea Grant when I decided to embark on this English degree um, just because I, I love writing and I just wanted to, you know, finish up something that you know, I wanted to accomplish. And that's really how that started. Um, so I did work at Sea Grant for nearly 15 years, and I was in the, the communications uh, department. And the majority of my position was public outreach. So getting Louisiana Sea Grant's message to the to the public and promoting the idea of coastal sustainability. Well, we've had, you know, Dr. Twilly and others from Sea Grant on the show. And if if there's one thing we can say about Sea Grant is they're excellent communicators, excellent science communicators. So, you know, I definitely look to them for, um, you know, how to model my own work. So it's so fascinating that you work there. So I want to talk a little bit about the book, um, Fragile Grounds, but to kind of set the stage, especially maybe for our, our listeners outside of Louisiana, um, our cemeteries here in Louisiana are a bit different than other parts of the country. Um, maybe they're more similar to cemeteries in Spain, I guess. But for those who may not be familiar, tell us about Louisiana cemeteries and what make what makes them unique. Well, one thing that makes uh, our cemeteries unique is we have a good many above ground cemeteries. And I'm not going to blow um, a, a hole in the tourism myth of the above. <laughs> of the above ground cemetery, because if you go to, um, and sorry for all the tour guides out there, I'm just going to do it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) if you go to a a cemetery tour in new Orleans, you, you, you may hear, or you may even hear from a local because this has been repeated so many times. It's, it's embedded in the, in the oral history of new Orleans is that you're probably going to hear that the cemeteries are above ground because of the water table. Well, that is a complete and utter myth. Um, New Orleans and and most of the state, we do have below ground cemeteries and they're not popping up because of the water table. But the uniqueness of the above ground cemeteries actually comes from both Spanish and French old world traditions. If you you go to France or Spain, you're going to see a very similar layout and design structure that you see in the cemeteries of Louisiana. So it really is that old world tradition that was carried here by our French and Spanish settlers. I have some friends that um, were visiting from Austin and and they were like, what is that? (laughs) What? Cause you, I mean, basically you drive from the airport, right? You know, they were like, what is all that stuff? What is that? And I was like, what are you talking about? I, I literally had didn't understand what they, like, I, I didn't 
know that they thought that was so strange. And, and so, um, it, it was just, I, I was probably 20 years old at the time. And I was like, what, what do you mean? You yeah, it doesn't look like that. Right. And so, um, yeah, so we had a chance to experience that firsthand, but I appreciate, appreciate the myth busters. On the, um, <laughs> we like doing a good amount of myth busting on the show. So appreciate that. Um, well, you know, our cemeteries, as you alluded to, are unique. Um, people are drawn to them, both, you know, people who have family there, but also tourists and visitors alike. And we on the show talk about ways that land loss is affecting our lives, affecting our communities, our culture, all of those things. And this is one that we just, you know, you don't often think about, but, you know, makes sense. Our, our cemeteries are threatened. So tell us about what inspired the book Fragile Grounds and sort of what you cover in the book, Jessica. Okay, well, actually, Fragile Grounds started from a forensics paper that I wrote in one of Mary Mannheim's classes. Um, it was in 2010. She gave us, you know, our to write a paper of our own choosing, and I chose to write on eminent domain, the power of the government to take land for public good, and we have lost cemeteries to eminent domain. Case in point, there truly is a cemetery under the parking garage of the Superdome. It's called Old Gerard. We do focus on it in the book. And, and that's not the only example, but that's one example. Um, but while I was writing this paper, I started thinking about my work with Sea Grant and tying it back to you know, coastal sustainability. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, we have all of these cemeteries on the coast. So what's going to happen to them? as the coast erodes or it it's inundated by water and the hard reality of that thought process is that they're gonna succumb to the Gulf of Mexico. And the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to document those sites before they were gone. And I went to the then director of Louisiana Sea Grant and I proposed a project to him to document them. And he thought it had merit. And he agreed to some seed money, a, a small grant. And I went back to Mary and asked her to partner with me. And when I first told her that I wanted to document the cemeteries on Louisiana's coast, she thought, are you crazy? Do you know how many cemeteries that is? <laughs> but I'm, I'm ambitious. And I said, yeah, let's just do it. And so um, we began the Louisiana Cemetery Project in the spring of 2011. And over the course of five years, we documented 138 cemeteries in 24 coastal and non-coastal parishes. And I took more than 18,000 photographs of these sites. And the, the pictures are featured predominantly in the book, and those are all your pictures, right? Um, yes, um, so they are. That, I, th I love that. I think that's so neat. So, Jessica, how did you find those cemeteries? Did, did you go to a town, kind of talk about it? And I, I know that y'all used a lot of technology, too, right? You, you actually incorporated kind of like new world stuff into this old world project. We did. Um what I started with was the data set from USGS because they do have a data set that is single point location of a good many cemeteries um, across Louisiana, the entirety of the state. But uh, we were told that a lot of it was done by volunteers. Some of it was cell phone data. So I just used that as a, a starting point. There's also a, a group called 
um, LA cemeteries that has um, a listing of every parish and the known cemeteries. And so we also use that as a site. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to take those single points from USGS and expand on that because my my thought process at the time was, okay, so a single point is great. Some data is better than no data. But if you have a single point and the land erodes or, or is inundated with water, how do you know what you've lost? So what I decided to do was, and and I, you know, Mary agreed with me, is that we were going to take a GPS and take perimeter points. So basically create polygons of all of these sites because the polygon geometry, the satellite data, it's always going to be there. But again, if you just have one point and the land goes, you don't, you don't know the the gravity of what you've actually lost. So, you so that's what... Yeah, so you kind of go from one burial point to the the whole cemetery, right? Right, right, right. So, so go ahead. No, that's okay. I, I wanted to say that, you know, that data that we collected actually became pretty important to the state. And it has been used um, in post-storm recovery by Louisiana Department of Health and FEMA DMORT, which is Disaster Mortuary in a few hurricanes and also the August flood of 2016 to really put, put these cemeteries back to where they belong. So that, that piece about disaster recovery, um, I didn't realize in, until very recently, we're working um, on our own cemetery restoration project at Restore Retreat. And, um, and that was brought up that how important that is to disaster recovery, because that was one of the groups they told us to check with, um, was just because that that's just so important after the fact. Um, and it, it's so funny in this, this one past couple of minutes, we talked about USGS, which is a federal division, right? A federal agency. And, and we talked about disaster recovery. So you, you may never put all those things together for something like this and um, throw in some anthropology on top of that. So, so that's fascinating. You talked about, um, I, I think uh, you might know this, but uh, so our part of the world is, is certainly um, South Central Louisiana and Terrebonne and Lafourche. And, and you talked about a cemetery there that had a particular impact on you at, at Ile de Jean Charles. So can you talk about that a little bit? Um, Ile de Jean Charles they just fascinated me. I I, I met uh, Chief Nakan and Father Rock Nakan, and they just they brought me into their world on the island, and I just sort of fell in love with the place. and 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 again, for me, it was the connection of people to place, which is so very important to my research. And for those of you that don't know, um, at the time. I started this project. There were on the island about 75 French-speaking residents of the Biloxi Chitamacha Choctaw tribe, and they their cemetery is very small. There's about 50 known burials, and Father Rock has had a plaque placed there with the names of the 50 known, but according to tribal oral histories, there's probably closer to 200 burials there. And the island is degrading so rapidly that the the state and the federal government have already made a relocation agreement with the tribe. But the the one thing that is so important here is that that cemetery cannot 
be moved. They cannot just pick it up and take it with them inland and and just it's it's going to be lost to the Gulf of Mexico. And I just I find that really sad. And not only Ile de Jean Charles, but you also have cemeteries in in other parts, Lower Plaquemines and um, around the Grand Isle area, um, you know, in in Louisville, things like this are happening across the state. And it's something the rest of the country may not recognize or, or even think about. Yeah, I think it's so important to highlight. I mean, we talk about the impacts of land loss. We talk about the impacts of sea level rise. And these this is one of those impacts that people just don't think about, but it can have such an emotional toll on a family or, you know, just on, on a community and, and their culture. So, so glad that you've highlighted it in, in the book. Um, tell us where can people go, Jessica, to, to purchase Fragile Grounds? Okay, first and foremost, please go to my cr- uh, press, University Press of Mississippi. Um, you can also find Fragile Grounds um, at local and community independent bookstores, please, please also support your local bookstores. And then also Amazon and the larger chain bookstores. So that press has a couple of, they call Third Coast books, right? I think that's where Ain't There No More and, and a few other books like that live too. So so definitely visit that again. One more time, Jessica, tell us, tell us where they can find it again. University Press of Mississippi, and I am actually part of the Third Coast series. Fragile oh, okay. Grounds is is yeah. part of the Third Coast series. Yes. So, um, so what are you working on now? <laughs> well, um, like I said earlier, I medically retired in 2015, so I'm at home and taking care of myself. But I do have a new research project that I'm working on from home. Thank goodness for the internet. Um, <laughs> It's not it's not cemeteries this time, but it is Louisiana history, and I'm not ready to divulge the topic yet. So you guys will have to stay tuned. Yeah, you'll have to promise um, to come back, though. <laughs> I I definitely will, and I'm also the keynote speaker this year for Northwestern's Louisiana Studies Conference on September the 19th. The theme is Lost Louisiana. That's awesome. That's very so, cool. Yes, yeah, so yeah. we'll have to find out more information, Jock, and and share that with our listeners that that might be interested. So. Well, thank you for joining us, Jessica. It was so fascinating to talk to you. The book is beautiful. Love the pictures. I love books like that. And so um, please go to University Press to to purchase it. Um, And thank you again, Jessica. We reserve the right to have you back on so you can talk about (laughs) what's next. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. And we have to mention too that the book did receive numerous awards. The 2018 Preserve Louisiana Award, and as Simone mentioned, a Coastal Stewardship Award from our partners at Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana. So congratulations on that. And thank you for highlighting this important aspect of Louisiana's coast and and our communities. Thank you so much. And also, please um, don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter and it's at Fragile Grounds. Excellent. Good mention. Good mention. You're better at this than Chuck and I. Yes, thank you for that. Um, I, I want to close out this segment with the Coastal Voice of the Week. We have Chandler from Shriver, Louisiana, says, I support Coastal because it is critical to our future. And just a reminder, you can add your Coastal Voice at MississippiRiverDelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast. Yeah, and thank you, Chandler. And I'll just, you know, maybe amend that to say it's critical to our pu- our future. And as we discussed today, it's also critical to our past, right? So um, 
really grateful for having Jessica Schecksneider on the show um, and really look forward to diving into her book, Fragile Grounds. We'll be right back after the break. We're going to be discussing the Coalition Restore Coastal Louisiana's oyster shell recycling program and a new reef that they are about to deploy on our coast. So stick with us. We'll be right back after this short break. Back, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat, and I have the Coastal Stat of the Week. CRCL's Oyster Shell Recycling Program began in 2014 and has collected nearly 10 million pounds of oyster shells from restaurants in the New Orleans area. In 2016, CRCL constructed its first oyster reef using recycled shell, a half mile long reef in Lake Anastasio within St. Bernard Parish's Biloxi Marsh. A second reef completed last year is protecting the Ponishan Indian tribe's culturally significant mound complex from erosion and sea level rise. CRCL recently collected positive data on that reef and is planning the construction of a fourth reef in Plaquemines Parish. That's million with an M, as you like to say, Simone. That's that's, That's a lot of oysters. Impressive. I mean, one, and how much oysters we eat, but then also, you know, as our friends at CRCL have liked to say over time, once you shuck them, don't just (laughs) chuck them, right? So people have not been chucking their oyster shells as a result of CRCL. So we're we're glad to talk about that and more and their new reef that they're ready to deploy. Um, Having a guest back on, Deb Visco-Abibo, Restoration Programs Director with the Coalition Restore Coastal Louisiana. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Deb. And and first, before we get into the the shells, um, tell us how have you been over the last few months? And I believe we heard that there's been a new addition to the Visco Abibo family. That's right. Um, well, thank you, Jacques and Simone, for having me back on. Yes. So um, so we now have a, a third in the family, uh, Coyote Malcolm, and a little baby today. <laughs> <laughs> He's a stat, uh, so maybe you could say. Um, today's actually his six-month birthday, uh, so it has just been amazing. Oh, happy birthday. And, you know, um, I, I know there are a lot of parents in our organizations, new parents, you know, not-so-new parents. And so hope you're finding the support and, and kind of the network um across our organization to kind of navigate these complex times of being a parent right now. Yeah, everyone's been so supportive. Um, I'm just sad that I can't use the lactation room that we set up in the office since we're all working from home. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I know. And my one piece of parenting advice, Deb, is that it just gets better and better, right? They start to get super fun personalities and they start to move. And so um, it just, it goes fast too. I know everybody tells you that, but the days are long and the years are short. So enjoy that time home with your little baby Erster. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) So how have things been at CRCL? Things have been very exciting, you know, even in the midst of this 
global pandemic that has you know made a lot of normal operations very difficult. We have a lot of big um, projects going on and moving forward. So we are busy. So we're excited. You know, we mentioned earlier in the show, um, you all are getting ready to deploy um, another oyster reef. Um, so tell us about that and, um, you know, what, what the latest news is. Yeah, so we have contractors out right now um, about to wrap up the deployment of this reef. So our third reef is situated in Barataria Bay. Um, along the western side between Hackberry and Creole Bay. And this reef is um, is our largest one yet. It's going to stretch about two-thirds of a mile long when complete. And um, it is composed of oyster shells that started out at our partner restaurants. So, you know, this is the, the end point of all of our oyster shell recycling efforts, you know, is that we like the shell, volunteers help bag it and prepare it, and we bring it back to its home where it can go to work, you know, doing um, what oyster reefs do best, which is providing shoreline protection and providing a high quality habitat for marine life, including other oysters and fish and predators of those fish. So, um, we're really happy to be um, able to celebrate this milestone right now. So, yeah, that's so fascinating. I mean, and I want to talk about the program at large because, as Simone mentioned in, in the stat of the week, it's several years old, 10 million shells. But can you just like walk us through, you know, the process? So I'm sitting down, I'm eating my oysters at, say, one of your partner restaurants, and then what happens from when that shell is then kind of put in a recycling bin at the restaurant to when it actually becomes a reef that you're getting ready to deploy? Just just walk us through those steps a little bit more visually. Yeah, we can, you know, follow the path of the shells, if you will. So um, we have about um, 19 partner restaurants right now, not counting ones that are closed <laughs> due to the pandemic at the moment. Um, and in our, our partner restaurants agree to separate out the, that shell once you have slurped down your tasty oyster, um, separate it from the rest of their trash. So we provide them with a number of special bins to collect that shell, depending on um, you know how many the restaurants need for their volume and what they can afford. So it's a, it's a partnership in terms that, you know, CRCL subsidizes about two thirds of the restaurants pay about a third for the service. So we pick up that shell with, uh, you know, a recycling contractor, uh, usually, uh, you know, three to seven days a week. Most restaurants might have five days a week collection pickup. You know, they, they put out those cans and they are collected by our recycler. And then a full truck of freshly, um, you know, used oyster shell will get transported to our collection site. Our collection site is currently in Beerus in Plaquemines Parish. Um, I'll mention, though, that we are in the middle of preparing a, a new shell collection site in Violet in St. Bernard Parish. So we'll be excited to 
um, tell you all about more, that more once it's been running. But the shell needs to then cure. It needs to, to breathe, you know, out in the air and sun to break down any sort of food or bacteria that's left on the shells because we need a nice clean surface. We can't put something dirty back in the water or it can get covered over with algae. So that shell cures for a minimum of six months. Um, our partners help um, turn the shell, you know, with a front loader to let it get aerated. And then the volunteers get involved. So we host um, oyster shell bagging events where volunteers come to our site and then roll up their sleeves and, uh, and get some coastal CrossFit in. Um, it's, it's hard work, but, um, but we have some really enthusiastic um, volunteers who shovel the shell into bags um, in ultra-grade nylon mesh bag. Use and these become the building blocks of our reef projects. So sometimes they go into a, a metal gabion basket, like the current reef, um, or sometimes the bags are used on their own in white by hand, a smaller reef project. So, wow. um, yeah, that's, that's our cycle. <laughs> that's quite the journey and quite an impressive um, effort. So, I mean, first, huge kudos to you and to everyone at CRCL who make that trans transformation possible. Um, I will say I've, I've had the pleasure of getting my Coastal CrossFit in um, a time or two by by volunteering to bag shells. And it is a great, um, you know, just not just a great exercise, but it's, you learn a ton and um, it's a great group activity. So when, when those events are able to happen again, I mean, highly recommend it to folks who can go out and do that. So tell us, Deb, um, you kind of mentioned this, but you all have had to overcome some obstacles with this latest reef, right, as it relates to COVID. Um, but the reef is moving forward. You have overcome the obstacles. So tell us how COVID specifically and what we've been going through in the last several months has impacted um, this latest reef. Yeah, so this reef was slated to be deployed in the spring. And um, the, the contractor we were working with um, let us know, I think around January, that they were um, hearing from the, the manufacturer of the, the metal baskets that the shell goes in, that, um, that the factory was shut down. And it turns out that that was due to COVID. So that was before we really knew very much about what we were dealing with here. Uh, you know, so we didn't have an idea of how long it would take and what sort of delay we were looking at. Um, but the, the um, you know, the, the contractors were, you know, finding different um, paths of shipments, you know, any way that they could get those materials to us more quickly once the, the factory reopened. Um, but, you know, eventually the factory did reopen um, once the virus was, was contained more in China and we were able to get, um, we call them Gabion mattresses. So, it's, um, you know, it's a steel uh, cage coated with a special alloy called Galfin and, um, and, these are really key to holding that shell in place so that it can do its work. 
direction that we need. Well, so glad you were able to overcome, you know, that that obstacle and that the reef is moving forward. Um, tell us, you know, you mentioned that this is your third reef, so you've had two others deployed. Are you starting to see some positive benefits or what impact are you seeing from the reefs that you all have deployed already? Yeah, it's interesting um, what the monitoring work has revealed so far. So our first reef was in the Luxy Marsh, Lake Athanasio specifically. And um, that one, we observed good recruitment, um, you know, early on the first year. And we observed it slowing the erosion behind the reef, so between the reef and the shoreline, this little gap. You could see that um, that erosion has been reduced by at least 25%. So, so we've seen that the, the effect is positive, but unfortunately, our recent sampling that we did, looks like, um, you know, in the past year, the recruitment on the reef hasn't been as um, hasn't been as good, and this may be because of some environmental factors that have impacted you know oysters across the coast. Or for other reasons, we we haven't finished our analysis yet, so uh, so we're hoping to understand a little bit more. Um, our second reef is in Poinishen, and that one was done in partnership. with an Indian tribe and local parishes. And our monitoring trip out there this year um, was extremely positive. So our, our monitoring crew, um, for example, had a boat pass by them that shouted, hey, you got the good fishing spot <laughs> while they were out there monitoring, um, which tells us that the, the local residents know that, you know, this reef is providing some really valuable habitat. So when they were out there pulling up a couple oyster bags to sample and count the recruitment, they were blue crabs all over. There were fish falling out of the little spaces between the oyster shells. And the oysters are doing their job growing outside and around those bags. This helps cement them. As these oysters grow, they secrete uh, a calcium carbonate type cement that these reefs are self um, they don't need you know, to come maintain them uh, as long as the conditions current and everything are right. And, um, you know, that's important to consider for the future when we have changing landscapes of, of size. So, so Deb, that, it's so fascinating to hear how complex it is. And so, um, Y'all have some great partners and funders that help the program. So do y'all tell them the same story or are they just like, would it, we, we want to be on board, whatever good things y'all are doing. Tell us a little bit about some of those partners and funders for the recycling program. Oh, well, thanks for asking about that because um, I love the chance to thank um, everyone who's made this possible. Um, so for our current reef project, um, we with support from Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Um, so they provided funding and also helped with the turning of the shell, um, our shell pile. Also, we received a grant from National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and Shell. And then we also worked with a new partner, um, which was the Wildlife Conservation Society through their Climate Adaptation Fund. 
Um, so um, their particular interest was in, you know, how these reefs can help transition one ecosystem to another. So, you know, for example, if we are understanding in a certain area that, you know, this coastal marsh is going to be overtopped according to sea level rise projections, if we establish a functional oyster reef along its fringe now, um, you know, we can certainly slow the erosion of that habitat in the short term, but in the long term, the oyster reef can continue to grow. They grow and expand in three dimensions and also replace the function of that habitat by providing not the same ecosystem, but uh, a different one, you know, from marsh to oyster reef. That's um, very functional and that benefits all of the, um, the area around it in terms of more reproductive material, oyster spat, oyster larvae into the water column, providing habitat for fish, shrimp, crabs, providing food for um, birds, for fish um, that use the reef. So, um, so it's just another way that these reefs are valuable when you look at the long-term picture. Um, and uh, you were asking about about funders that are also um, you know, mentioned that we've, um, you know, also partnered over time with um, local parishes like the project out in um, Parish, and um, and Shell has been a supporter. So, Deb, the you were talking about you're working on your fourth reef. What other, um, what what else is next for the oyster shell recycling program? So, um, so right, the, the fourth one is um, a reef that's going to be in Plaquemines Parish. And for this one, um, we are working with the Grand Bayou Indian Village, who identified a, a site that is at risk of being um, overtopped by sea level rise. So, um, you know, many of our um, of, of the native First Nations that inhabit, um, you know, have areas that, you know, their ancestors have built um, or have been um, important to their culture for many generations that are at risk of being lost now. And so some of these groups have asked us to, you know, help them preserve their own heritage and we, um, the appeal, you know, according to them, of you know, working with a material like the oyster shell is that, um, you know, it comes from the environment, and and you know, CRCL really likes to, you know, see and advocate for projects that are using natural infrastructure as much as possible. So, um, so learning from, you know, how how nature has maintain the delta for, um, you know, for, for eons and uh, and recreating that as much as possible. So oyster reefs are a great example of that. Um, it's also a lot of the theory behind things like reconnecting the river to the estuaries. Um, so so for our our projects, we try to take that those angles. You know, when we're choosing locations. Um, you know, projects that can benefit 
the people in the communities that that are on the coast as much as possible and that are in harm. Well, it's so exciting, Deb, about, you know, all the progress that has been made with this program in such a short amount of time. And congrats on the soon or ongoing deployment of the third reef. Um, where can people go to learn more about CRCL's oyster shell recycling and, and support it? Can go to crcl.org. And, um, and from our homepage, you can click on oyster shell recycling. There's a great interactive story map where you can explore information about our restaurants um, and see details about reef projects that we have done in the past. Uh, so I'd encourage everyone to check us out there. Um, check us out on social media at CRCLT. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for being on. Um, and I guess, you know, it is time for the fun question. So I'm not going to make you tell us, uh, you know, what partner restaurant you would most want to eat at right now. But <laughs> I guess I'll just ask, what is your favorite way to eat oysters? So, um, I mean, I am a big fan of, um, of a good mignonette. So the mignonette is like a red wine vinegar and shallots. Um, you know, so, so, you know, like a really juicy, you know, Louisiana oyster <laughs> with, um, with just like a touch of, of that mignonette. Um, it has to be, you know, the, the, you know, the, the pure form. Um, you know, I mean, I can enjoy them other ways too, but, um, but I think that lets the, the oyster shine. <laughs> Mm, yeah, I, I, the another answer would be there's no bad way to eat an oyster, yeah. right? Especially if it's from Louisiana. So, <laughs> I mean, I, was, knows I love to talk about oysters and birds. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I was deprived of raw oysters for a while and eat them while I was pregnant. So, uh, you know, so you realize what you miss when you can't have it. <laughs> Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Deb, for coming back on. You know, please come back on soon and keep us updated on all the things that are going on at CRCL um, with its oyster shell recycling program and, and at large. So um, good luck to you as you continue the work to deploy that third reef. And we look forward to staying on top of, of how it, it performs. So um, thanks well, so much for having me. Yeah, thanks, Deb. Um, well, Simone, that was another great show. But before we leave you, we've got some important updates to give. Um, you know, it's hard to believe that um, later this month we'll be commemorating the 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And I know we talked about it with Steve Caparata last week. We're also going to have some guests on upcoming um, episodes to talk about how communities are doing um, 15 years after Katrina, um, how the state is, has been doing. You know, I, I know... Um, Katrina was a huge wake up call on how we address coastal restoration and protection and protection from storms. So um, a lot to talk about. And our organization, Restore the Mississippi River Delta, is hosting a webinar um, on Wednesday, October 26th at 1130 a.m. And it'll feature a number of, of friends and former guests of our show. Um, it'll be moderated by Michael Hecht, um, president and CEO of Geno Inc., um, it'll have Andy Horowitz, who is a Tulane professor and the author of a new book, Katrina, A History, uh, 1915 to 2015. Um, it'll have Charles Allen, Community Engagement Director with the National Audubon Society, 
Barbara Johnson, founder of the Great Delta Tours, as well as Angela Chalk, um, executive director of Healthy Community Services. So most of those people we've had on the show, I think we're trying to get Andy on an upcoming episode. Um, so it'll be a great conversation. And is it think- friend going to be on too? Yes. Yes, yes, we just oh, confirmed oh, that, that yesterday. <laughs> no, it's not a spoiler, but um, we did confirm that Bren Haas um, with CPRA will as well be on um, the panel. So uh, no doubt a great conversation about all aspects of, of Katrina recovery and kind of where we are 15 years later. So please go to um, the Restore the Mississippi River Delta Facebook page and you can find the event there um, and register to watch it. So we'll, we'll be sure to keep you posted as that event happens next week. Um, another reminder, speaking of oysters, we still want your grandma's um, famous oyster dress and recipe. So um, go to MississippiRiverDelta.org, um, check out our um, coastal cookbook and um, submit your recipe or just check out the amazing recipes that are on there. Um, and then last reminder, I don't know if you know this, Simone, but Gambit's Best of New Orleans Awards is open and live for voting. Awesome. Yes, we have some we have a. We have a lot of friends that I would say are deserving of your vote. Um, They've been so good to us and good to our coast. So if you're so inclined to go to, um, you know, the Gambit webpage, um, the best of New Orleans awards are there and you can vote for a number of categories. Might I just suggest for both best local TV meteorologist, our friend Margaret Orr, um, you can go back and listen to the episode we had um, where we interviewed Margaret, but Certainly, you know, very deserving of the best local TV meteorologist. For best hotel, you know, the old 77 Hotel and Chandlery has been so great to our organization, such a good partner through their Mississippi River Delta campaign um, and really donating, um, you know, funds from that that have supported the work of our volunteers and others. So um, huge shout out to old 77. Um, For best yoga studio, Swan River Yoga has also done a number of promotions and and, and um, fundraisers that have come back to the coast. So I want to give a huge shout out to Swan River Yoga. And then for Best Chef, I mean, the options are endless, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Nina Compton, Nathan Richard, Isaac Toops. I mean, so many of our chef friends um, and their restaurants are deserving of your love and support. So go check it out. Um, and yeah, we'll just see. Maybe some of our friends will get the recognition they deserve. I'm pretty sure that they will. So this is a part of the show that we are getting better at. So please like, rate, and subscribe and share Delta Dispatches. <laughs> Jessica did a good job of talking about her own um, Twitter handles. So um, yeah, don't forget to um, share Delta Dispatches. And, and so all the new episodes can pop up when they're fresh and hot. Is that how that works? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, another great episode, two topics that um, are important to our coast that you don't often think about. And we'll have more great episodes coming up soon. So um, until then, we'll see y'all later, alligators. Alligators.